0: You know, it's amazing how God uses um, events and experiences in our lives to give us a new perspective, uh, to help us see something in a way that we've never seen it before. Um, I was thinking through this idea of perspective this week, and uh, this image, I was reminded of this image, uh, famous image that uh, was taken by the Apollo uh, 11 astronauts of the Earth rise from the moon, and just the perspective that something like that provides, like Wow, like every person who's ever lived my entire life, all of the issues going on, are, like it's all happening right there, just that sense of awe and you know, how small we are in the vastness of space. It's just an amazing perspective-generating experience. Um, in my life, I found that when I have moments that provide uh, perspective, it leads me to uh, not take for granted something I've been taking for granted, So, for example, moments like uh, becoming an adult and starting to have to pay your own bills and like, oh, someone's been paying for this my entire life. Like, groceries cost money. That's a thing. That's a perspective moment. Um, Becoming a parent and having to be the one raising a child, disciplining a child, everything that goes into it and all the challenges. Um... Uh, traveling to a part of the world, for example, uh, that really struggles with deep um, poverty and other issues, I, I was reminded of this picture I took a, a year ago when I was in India. Um, before our church began supporting two church planters there, and you know, just these kids who literally live among garbage, and just the perspective of like, I have clean water whenever I need it. Like, I can go to the pantry whenever I need to. And like they live this way. That was a huge perspective moment uh, for me. Um, I think we experience this when you're sick and you you start to not take for granted your health anymore. I remember the most horrendous day of my life was when I got food poisoning about 10 years ago. I foolishly ate some five-day-old cookie dough because I love cookie dough. I no longer love cookie dough because that was a terrible, terrible day. And I remember thinking at the time, like, I'm never going to take for granted feeling well and feeling normal because this is just terrible. Um, But I think anytime you uh, lose someone, um, someone who moves away, someone who's dealing with illness, um, somebody who who dies, goes on to be with the Lord, and coping with their loss. Those are perspective moments, you know, when you you get a sense of, like, I'm not taking for granted time with the people I love. These are those moments, those sobering moments where God really highlights for you some things that are important that maybe you've taken for granted. I know that's been true for me. And I think in these sobering moments of perspective, if we're listening, we can find ourselves at the end of it treasuring more than ever what we have. But these moments are rarely easy. They're often painful, surprising, disorienting, stressful, sad, confusing. But as he does, God uses the trials of life to grow us and to mature us. And today we come to the book of Nahum in the Old Testament. It's going to give us perspective. I am going to warn you, though, his words are not easy. They're not simple. They're not a beach read. They're not comfortable, but they are true. Nahum was a prophet. He spoke to, uh, for God to his people, reminded the people of Israel of their identity and who God was. And we're going to see in this book, as we've seen in the other books of the Minor Prophets, this, this theme that shows up over and over again that God uh, l- is both loving and righteous. He is both a God of justice and a God of grace at the same time that's hard for us to understand those two things being simultaneous it's like the childlike confusion of why does my parent who says they love me punish me it just doesn't make sense to a child and we have that same kind of feeling about God Uh, we don't think that he always shows grace to people we think might deserve it sometimes we wish we would bring his justice against people that we think do deserve it but we have to remember that he is God and we are not I'm convinced that there's a number of kind of common speed bumps in our faith life, our spiritual journey, that we all kind of have to contend with at some point. I think this is one of them. I think one of the major speed bumps, things that will slow us down in our growth and our understanding of God, is this reconciling of God's love and His justice, His righteousness uh, and His grace, And, and being okay with those two things being true about Him, if we can internalize His justice and love both being true, both being good, we begin to really understand God on a new level and have a new rich perspective on what Jesus did on the cross. Um, I'm going to make a confession. I did this on social media uh, this week that if you had asked me a couple weeks ago which book of the Bible I was the least familiar with, I would have said Nahum. And uh, so let's do this. Raise your hand if you've ever read Nahum. Okay. All right, I got some overachievers. I like it. Who's read Nahum in the last year? Yes, I'm I'm proud of you. That's one more than me. Um, Who knew Nahum was in the Bible? Okay, that's one that most of us can get behind. Okay, Um, it's a very challenging book, and and I think it is um, really going to give us some perspective, important perspective. And so I want to jump into it with you. If you brought your Bible, turn to Nahum. If you're unfamiliar with the layout of Scripture, Nahum is in the same area of these books we've been looking at the last um, several weeks. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. It's after Micah, It's before Habakkuk. We like here at Real Hope to dive into God's Word together. We have Bibles on the tables. If you don't own a Bible, take one of those with you. We'd love for you to have that. We've got Note cards and highlighters and anything uh, you want there to be able to dive in and um, highlight and take notes as we go along. Um, Two weeks ago, we were in Jonah. And um, I didn't know this before, but it's definitely true to say that Nahum is a sequel to Jonah. The two kind of go together together. And so that's something to remember. If you just kind of take a mental note of that, if you want to understand the Bible a little bit better, is that Jonah and Nahum, they kind of go together. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. So Jonah, if you are here, you would remember that Jonah was speaking about the Assyrian Empire, the, the, particularly the people who lived in Nineveh. The Assyrians, um, here's a little map of the, what we call the Middle East. They had this massive empire at the time. Um, that stretched all the way from kind of uh, modern Iraq all the way through down into Egypt. They were just this incredibly powerful, fearsome empire, and Israel is like just this little country kind of in their shadow. And um, it, the book of Jonah was specifically speaking to the people who live in Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrian empire. And here's an artist's rendering um, that archaeologists have put together of what Nineveh may have looked like. It was just massive, expansive city by ancient standard. I mean, there were hardly any cities like this. It was just this uh, sprawling metropolis, and um, Jonah was bringing a message from God to the people of Nineveh. Now, look, the Assyrians were feared for their unusual brutality. They would overwhelm countries and and take over them, but the the thing that really set them apart was the psychological warfare that they, they waged. They would take over an area and just to send a message they would burn people alive they would impale people on spikes and line them up down the road there was at least one occasion where an ancient historian wrote about them building pyramids of skulls as a warning to other people this was all propaganda to say do not mess with us you're going to lose it's going to be very bad for you if you do. And so as a result of all of that, many of these surrounding nations, when Assyria set their sights on them, they just gave up. They just surrendered. They didn't even try to fight back. In fact, check this out. This is an Assyrian relief uh, carving. This is from Assyria's own historical records. Archaeologists found this in the Palace Without Rival, it was called, in Nineveh, and they chronicle all their victories. And so here you have some Assyrian soldiers and some Uh, engines they built, machines to uh, blast through walls of these fortified cities, and they're scaling the walls. And back here you can see that they're impaling people on these spikes publicly to make an example of them. They are bragging about their own cruelty in their own historical records. This is who the Assyrians were. And when you understand this, you start to see why Jonah was so upset that God gave them grace. It's like if anyone deserved God's wrath, it was the Assyrians. And if anyone was undeserving of God's grace, it was the people of Nineveh. But we talked about in that message, Jonah, uh, our idea of what grace is. And, And it's so important to keep coming back to this. Grace is undeserved favor. It's God treating you with kindness and forgiveness and mercy, and you don't deserve it. Us not deserving grace is a key part of understanding what grace is. And so Jonah goes to Nineveh. He says, you've got to, God has a message. You've got to change your ways. And, and gives, God gives them grace. Jonah's not happy about it. And Nahum comes along about a century later. About a century later, Nahum comes along, another prophet, and he's also got a message for Nineveh. And this one is not going to be a message of grace. God is now going to execute his justice against the cruel Assyrians, which, of course, he's entitled to do. You know, that's a really important uh, aspect of grace. Again, we talked about this in the Jonah message. It's this grace. God's grace is a gift, and it's his to give. We don't get to decide who deserves it. God gives his grace to who he wants. But if you believe that, you also have to believe the flip side— that if it's God's gift to give, it's his also to withhold. And in the case of Assyria, they had their chance. They had grace. And God gave them another century. And so we're going to look at Nahum. It's three chapters, and it describes the end of Assyria, but also the hope that's going to come from that. And and the hope that's described in Nahum is not just for the Israelites living at that time, like, no more Assyrians. It also points forward to the ultimate and eternal hope, And so it really applies to all of our lives. Um, So let's go ahead and jump into it. Nahum 1, we're going to look at just a few verses. A prophecy concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. If you're taking notes, highlight that word jealous. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes invents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. And then I would highlight the rest of this right here. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, let's be honest. We don't prefer to hear God described like that. Hearing about God's love, his mercy his forgiveness, things that are all true, it's a little more palatable, isn't it? But the path to knowing God as he is, not how we want him to be, but as he is, runs straight through books like Nahum. You have to look at God in his fullness of who he actually is. He says that he's a jealous God. That's an interesting word. I think we think of that as kind of a negative Human emotion, je- like who, is, who, who like aspires to be jealous? I'm going to be jealous one day. It's going to be great. No one thinks that way. So here God is saying, I'm a jealous God. Well, it doesn't mean the kind of petty envy that we tend to think of uh, on a human level. He's saying, I don't share glory. I don't share power. You know, I'm the creator. I'm the only one deserving of worship and devotion. Now, you see that all through Scripture, but that's what he means when he says, I'm a jealous God. It says that he's slow to anger, and I think we, when we hear that, we tend to think, that's great, he's slow to anger, and we forget he gets angry. God gets angry. He's slow to anger. He, We're going to see throughout this book, he punishes idolaters. He punishes those that commit atrocities. God had offered the Assyrians grace a century earlier and they repented in the moment, and God gave, you know, showed mercy. But this century since then, since the time of Jonah, has shown that repentance wasn't real. You know, the word repentance itself, uh, it, it, the word itself means to turn your mind. It's a very descriptive word in the original biblical languages. The, the, the concept of repentance is not just feeling bad. Like, yeah, I feel bad I did that thing. It's you're walking on this path, you realize... You don't want to be on that path. You want to turn toward the Lord and follow Him. It's a turning. You've left the path you were on. doesn't mean you're perfect, but you're no longer going in that direction. That's repentance. And the Assyrians did not really repent. They really did not turn from their ways. John the Baptist, in the time of Jesus, spoke about the fruit of repentance. And what he meant by that is, if you really repent, if you really turn toward the Lord, you're going to see evidence of that in your life, the fruit That proves your repentance was real. There was no real repentance with the Assyrians. In the time of Jonah, they were just sort of going through the motions. They really just wanted to get the God of Israel off their back. That's what they were trying to do. And God gave him a century to show that they meant it. And it says the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. That's an important idea. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But let's keep going. Skip to verse 7. Says this, the Lord is good. Highlight that phrase. The Lord is good. A refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Verse 8 But with an overwhelming flood, highlight those two words an overwhelming flood, he will make an end to Nineveh and he will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. I love verse 7. Isn't it beautiful? The Lord is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble, caring for those who trust him. It's, it's beautiful. And then this hard turn in verse 8 about destroying Nineveh. And it can feel like, whoa, Nahum's like all over the map. Like God's good. He's a refuge. Now he's like destroying these people. And I think that just shows again that in, in God's eyes, in the eyes of the prophets, like God's judgment and his goodness are harmonious. They're not at odds with each other. They can both exist. God's goodness is not undermined by his willingness to punish sin. In fact, you can kind of tell how good someone is by how angry they get at the opposite of good. You know, it's precisely because God is good that he's incensed at the Assyrian cruelty. And it says that Nineveh will be destroyed by an overwhelming flood. That actually happened in 612 B.C., after this was written... The Babylonians came up from the south and invaded Nineveh to take over. And at that exact moment, the Tigris River flooded and overwhelmed the city. And sources outside the Bible confirm this. Later in Nahum, if you keep reading all of it, uh, it says, um, Nineveh is like a pool whose water is draining away. Nineveh was so completely destroyed by the Babylonian invasion and this flood that it was unrecognizable afterwards. In fact, there are ancient accounts of armies marching over where Nineveh used to be and not even realizing there had been a city there. That's how total their destruction was. Let's keep going. God's going to now begin to speak to his people. Skip down to verse 14. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in your temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Look there on the mountains, and then highlight the rest of the sentence. The feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. So God is saying, through Nahum, that a messenger is coming who's going to bring good news and peace. And and as the prophets often did, they spoke to kind of two timelines at the same time. So Nahum is saying in the short run, you're going to hear the news that Assyria is over. Like they've been defeated. The menace is no longer there. And you can rejoice about that. But it's always pointing forward too to the eternal hope, the eternal good news, the best news ever that's going to come through Christ, who Isaiah would call the Prince of Peace. So there's some foreshadowing here of what the message Jesus is going to bring. Now, we don't have time to read all of Nahum, but if you keep reading Nahum, you just get this front row, dramatic seat to God's wrath. Despite all of Nineveh's power, their prestige, their supposed invincibility, God's bringing them low. And I want to look at just a few more verses, and then we'll talk about what this means for our lives. Skip over to chapter 3, if you're following along. 3, verse 1. It says this, Woe to the city of blood. Highlight that. Woe to the city of blood. Full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, the crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots. Verse 5, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. Now skip down to verse 18. A couple more verses here. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your nobles lie down to rest Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? That's the end of the book. That's the end of Nahum. God is against the Assyrians. He's going to bring them down. We observe God's justice in action and the promise of peace to his people, a peace they had long prayed and hoped for. So what does this mean for us in our lives today? There are lessons for us when we look in two directions, at the world around us and at our own lives. So let's think about that. Let's start with the world around us. When we see injustice in the world, pain, prejudice, death, war, destruction, all, all the painful aspects of life, We can trust that God is going to bring about his justice in his timing. He's slow to anger, but he gets angry, and he gets angry over sin. And when we see those who commit injustices in our world, the Assyrians of 2018, so to speak, and we get angry about it, we can take comfort in knowing God is even more grieved about it than we are woe to the city of blood he said about Nineveh that word woe w-o-e in the Hebrew language was an expression of deep lament pain of visceral dissatisfaction this is not the way things are supposed to be woe to Nineveh God said and you better believe God is saying similar things today woe to you human traffickers Woe to you abusers. Woe to you racists. Woe to you despots. Woe to you who worship your careers instead of me. Woe to you who judge others. Woe to you gossipers. Woe to you who are greedy. Woe to you who take advantage of others. Woe to you who put yourself at the center of your own universe. Woe to you who know the Bible backwards and forwards because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. That, by the way, was a quote of Jesus directly in Luke 11. We can take comfort in knowing that God is perfectly just, and as Nahum said, the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. But we have to look at ourselves. That's not the end of the story. We can't just sort of stop there and be like, yeah, all those bad people are going to get punished. I'm good with that. That is not the whole story. We have to look at ourselves. Because we too deserve God's justice for our sins. Our sins may not be as self evidently egregious as the Assyrians were, but scripture teaches throughout that any sin is enough to keep us apart from God and subject to his justice. Apart from Christ, we are the guilty ones Nahum's talking about. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. That's not those bad people, that's us, that's everybody. Any one sin is enough for that to be true. Uh, James 2.10 puts it this way, but there's many passages we could point to. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. God does not leave the guilty unpunished. And we, by the way, do not have the power to get rid of our own guilt. My friends, if we do not have Christ in our lives, then we stand guilty of our sins. And everybody's in the same boat. We're powerless to do anything about it. And make no mistake, on the cross, God did not let up on his justice or simply forget our sins and say, eh, it's not that big a deal. That's not what happened on the cross. On the cross, Jesus absorbed onto himself like a lightning rod the full measure of God's wrath and justice for all sins past, present, and future. God himself took the punishment so that we wouldn't have to. Romans, the beginning of Romans chapter 1 and 2, uh, speaks about all of us being deserving of God's wrath, which leads to this beautiful assurance that we find uh, in Romans three twenty-three. It says this, uh, 23 and 24. All have sinned. How many? All. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified, that word means declared innocent. All are justified freely by his grace, undeserved favor, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. All have sinned, and all are declared innocent, justified by his grace. And so if we truly understand how much we deserve God's wrath, his justice, the full magnitude and beauty of the gospel begins to come into focus. Because if we lose sense of our own need for grace, then we lose sight of the fullness of what Jesus did for us. Out of his immeasurable love, Jesus, God in the flesh, guilty of zero sins, paid the price for the sins of all of humanity. The wrath of God that that was brought upon Nineveh, that same wrath God poured out, that same justice onto Jesus because of us and instead of us. And through faith in Christ, we can experience his grace, his undeserved favor. And we are declared innocent, we are justified. And not only declared innocent, welcomed into God's family. A child of God we become. So if you want a deeper appreciation for what Jesus did for you, you have to look squarely at God's wrath. Nahum gives us a glimpse of that. And when you do that, the light of God's love, in contrast, seems brighter. Nahum, even though it's mainly about God's justice and wrath, does point forward to Jesus and points forward to our need for Jesus. It does so in the way I highlighted, you know, that a messenger is going to come bringing good news and peace. That foreshadows the role of Jesus. But there's another way it connects to the New Testament that's a little less obvious. Nahum's name in Hebrew means comfort, consolation. That's interesting, isn't it? A book about God's wrath written by a man named Comfort, Consolation. And isn't that what we're all looking for? The comfort of knowing that we're loved unconditionally, The consolation that our future is secure. The security of knowing God is in control and will put everything right and make all things new. That's what we're looking for. That's what the Jews at the time of Jesus' life were looking for. Consolation, rescue, comfort, hope. But they were still under the thumb of dictators. This time it was Rome. So flip over if you're reading your Bible to Luke chapter 2 with me. Luke 2.25. We'll put it on the screens too. I'm going to read something that happened when Jesus was a newborn, when Mary and Joseph went to the temple to dedicate him uh, as the law commanded. It says this, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Highlight that. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die ...before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For, and then highlight this, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles It's kind of a dark note. Here's the Messiah, and he's celebrating the arrival of the Messiah. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel, and yet two things are happening. He's the bringer of good news and peace, as Nahum spoke about, but he highlights the fact, as the ancient prophets did, that God's justice and love are simultaneously at work. The infant Christ would lead to the falling and rising of many in Israel both of those things. For those who place their faith in this child, he would wipe away their sins, new creation, blank slate, adopted into God's family, eternal hope. But for those who would reject him, they would be left to experience the Lord's justice on their own. Of course, God's heart is that everyone would turn toward him and experience his grace, experience his peace, his consolation. And live in the relationship with him we were always meant to have, but he's given us a free will. You know, God uh, desires so much to have a real relationship with us that he allows us the freedom to reject him. So that we also have the freedom to freely choose him. We can choose to give him our hearts and our lives or not. having not known nahum very well before preparing for this message when i just for myself when i when i kind of step back and think like what have i learned from this i come back to that word we started out with perspective nahum gives us the gift of an unflinching glimpse at god's wrath his justice the seriousness of sin the depth of our need for rescue and you know what that does for me? It makes me understand Christ's love on a whole new level. He personally absorbed the wrath of God so I wouldn't have to. He did the same for all of you. I definitely take God's grace for granted. I definitely do. I end up thinking I deserve it. Sometimes I don't even realize I get there, but I do. I think all of us probably struggle with that to some extent, thinking we deserve God's love, deserve God's grace. He owes it to us. And so, going forward, when I'm self-aware enough to realize it, or the Holy Spirit shows me that I'm beginning to take God's grace and His love for granted, I'm going to go read Nahum. When I'm tempted to view God's love as just sort of small and sentimental instead of deep and proactive and costly. I'm going to go read Nahum. By looking at God's wrath, as uncomfortable as that might be, we start to see with fresh eyes what happened on the cross. Jesus took on God's wrath instead of us to offer us grace. And it's not a cheap grace, it's a costly grace. A grace with the most expensive price tag imaginable. And Jesus willingly paid that price. He freely gave himself so that we could be fully, finally forgiven and experience that hope and comfort and consolation. So in looking at God's wrath, as we have in Nahum, we should, I believe, come away with a deeper sense of just how loved we are because God absorbed all of that unto himself, so that we wouldn't have to. Praise God for that. Let me pray.